Well, good morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's all right. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Tom. Uh, I was brought up in this church for the first 18 years of my life uh, before I moved away to the southwest to study. Um, since then, I've been working as a trainee at Wickham Baptist Church in Bath, and I want to bring you greetings from the fellowship there. I know that many of them are praying for us this morning. Now, children, you're staying in with us this morning, and I've got two questions for you to think about as we go through. What problem do we have, and what did Jesus do about it? But before I start, today I owe you a debt of thanks. I simply wouldn't be standing here without the witness of this church into my life, the ways you discipled me, the ways you spoke the gospel into my life, the way you introduced me to the Bible and taught me to read it, the way you encouraged me to pray. And so I want to say thank you. This church is a massive part of my story, and I thank God for what he has done for you through you. Now, we live in a world that spends vast amounts of time telling us the incredible importance of self-esteem. As part of my role in Bath, I run a youth group for four to seven-year-old kids. Uh, and one day, a few weeks back, they were humming along to a song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. That's one that I remember from Kingsmore and from Sunday School here. And so I asked a few of the kids uh, what their favorite song was from that day. And I was expecting them to say, he's got the whole world in his hands. But they turned around and they said to me, our favorite song is, we've got the whole world in our hands. You see, uh, the words of a song about God's greatness have been changed. At least in that song, in that school, they are teaching this gospel of self-affirmation. Now, it was quite shocking to me, but actually that's one of the most popular messages of our world. Today we come to a hard passage, and it contains difficult truths, truths that were uncomfortable for me as I prepared this message. I've called this message human helplessness, the hard fact of the gospel, and yes, there will be parts today that are hard, but you need to hear this. This cannot be a take-it-or-leave-it sermon. Why? Because as we understand our natural position before God, that with the depths and the riches of the gospel to us increase. As we go through the passage, I've got three questions for us. If we move the slide on. How can this be fair? How bad is it really? And how can we answer? And if you've got your Bible open in front of me, in front of you, that would really help. We're picking up a great argument from chapter 2, where Paul's made the case that outward observance to the Jewish law, it counts for nothing if it is not accompanied by a heart that is set on righteousness. Look down at verse 1 of our passage. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? If outward obedience to the Jewish law, if outward circumcision is of no value, what advantage is there in Judaism? And hang on, uh, had the Jewish people followed the law wholeheartedly? No. So if Jews, just like pagans, will be condemned, then what's the point of it all? It's not fair. 
Now, it's unlikely that many of us have had an Orthodox Jewish upbringing. So how can this apply to us? Well, I've got a few questions for you this morning. How many times have you been to church? How many sermons have you sat through? How many nights per week have you sacrificed to church stuff? What traditions and rules have you followed? For us, all all that great Christian heritage, those hours spent, if all that contributes nothing towards our righteousness before God, and that has been the message of chapter 2, self-righteousness, ceremony, outward appearances, well, at least not getting caught up in those big marquee sins. None of these can ultimately make us righteous before God. Well, Paul, then, what's the point? It's just not fair. Doesn't God see the trouble we went to? Does it not contribute anything to us being saved? Well, look at Paul's answer in verse 2. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Well, why is that, Paul? First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. See, for starters, the Jewish nation had re- had had God's unique revelation. All those glorious predictions foreshadowing the gospel, there's great value there. But Paul says in terms of our natural state of being under the wrath of God, it makes no difference. What about all of our traditions, our history, the fact that you're part of this church? You've read the Bible, you sing the songs. I need to be clear with you this morning, none of of this can make the tiniest bit of difference to our righteousness before God. But there's another objection. It's not fair. Uh, The Jews had God's revelation. They had the gospel laid out in promise and prophecy. But Paul, it didn't work. Not all of them were saved. In fact, it was only a small remnant that believed with their hearts. Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? What if some or even many were unfaithful? They don't respond with the heart and so their religion is declared useless. Does that mean God is unfaithful? Or that his word has failed or that somehow he's broken his promises? Look at Paul's response in verse 4. Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. God is true. His word is true. His judgments are true. Whatever that makes us even if we don't like it. We can plead our long service at church, the number of times we've read the Bible, the head knowledge that we might have, the number of people we've told that we are believers. If we do these things, does God owe us anything? Yes, many of those things are really important. And yes, we can worship God through those things. But doing that kind of stuff gains us no righteousness before God. It cannot save us. He will be true even if it makes you and I liars. Whether you think that sort of thing makes you righteous before God doesn't count for anything. We might say it's not fair. How can so much count for so little? How could thousands of years of Jewish tradition and ceremony and circumcision not gain them one ounce of righteousness? Well, Paul brings out his trump card, David. In the second part of verse 4, he's quoting Psalm 51. David wrote it after his sin with Bathsheba. He lusted after Bathsheba. He slept with her. He got her pregnant and had her husband murdered. And God sent Nathan the prophet who pointed out 
David's sin to him. David was cut to the heart. And in his repentance, he wrote this psalm, Psalm 51, and he confessed his sin to the Lord. And in verse 4 of that psalm, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is the nature of all sin. First and foremost, sin is against God. And David in that moment realizes just the gap in magnitude between him and God. God will be totally blameless and perfectly wise and just. And the idea that what we say or our attendance or our traditions can somehow cover our sin, David realizes that is utter foolishness. God will be proved totally right, even if it shows us to be drastically unrighteous. But there's more objections coming. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? The suggestion is that our sin actually makes God look great. You put a torch on in a dark room and it shines brightly. You take it out into the sun and you can hardly see it. And so God's righteousness is made all the more clear in the contrast to our sin, right? And so it's unfair that God would judge us for that. Or what if our sin serves good purposes? What if it meets our needs? God wants us to live fulfilled lives. So how is it fair that he judges me on the things that I find really fulfilling? God wants me to be happy. So how is it fair that he judges me on the sins that thrill me with pleasure? Or verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, And so increases his glory. Why am I still condemned as a sinner? If through our sin or through our lie, God's glorious purposes are achieved. Or for example, if someone comes to faith through a lie that I've told. It's not fair that God judges me when good comes because of my sin. Good for me or even good for him. Or Paul's answer in verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? See, God is working through all things at all times, and he works good out of terrible sin daily. If it were unjust for him to judge any of those sins, how then could he judge anything or anyone? Now, this might all seem a little bit far-fetched, but the idea that we can justify ourselves before God is really popular. Many ways we use to explain sin away. It actually served a good purpose. How can he judge me for that? God is not working, uh, God is working around me, even because of my sin. So how is it fair that he judges me? Well, what about the things that we feel entitled to? It's not fair that God judges us for those sins that we feel like we really need. Last week I was meeting with a friend who's struggling with addiction to pornography. For years, he's been laissez-faire about it. He wanted fulfillment. He lives in a stressful world, and each week is really difficult. Pornography is his escape. Isn't it unfair that God would judge him for that? In all these situations where we call out, it's not fair, we run into verse 4 and verse 6. God will be proved totally right. 
in his judgment. And there will be no favoritism. None of us have a free pass, not with years of sermon listening, not even when God providentially works for good through our sin. But there's one final objection. Paul, you've been preaching this gospel of complete forgiveness. And reading from verse 8, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. See, if God is in the business of showing grace, why not get on and sin how you like? As long as you've got Jesus in your back pocket, you're okay, right? Well, Paul becomes incensed at this point. He says that someone who takes such a flippant view to the grace of God, someone with such a flippant understanding of what it is that the Son of God died for them, he says they will be justifiably condemned. There are many reasons the devil will tempt us to think that God's judgments are unfair, that will somehow sway God in the end. Friends, this is so dangerous. Paul spends time rebutting these objections because they actually stop us from coming to the gospel. To come to the gospel, we need to ask, how bad is it? And that means not having 101 objections and excuses in the way. The world teaches that we are essentially good. We can do all things if we set our mind to it. With hard work and and dedication, we can scale the heights. And we even teach our kids that. That's what the kids I know in Bath are being taught to sing. We've got the whole world in our hands. But Paul is about to show these ideas to be false. In fact, the truth he's expounding here is more or less the opposite. In verses 9 to 20 of our passage, Paul is concluding an argument that he's been building since midway through chapter 1 of Romans. That our natural state before God is unrighteous and under wrath. Now what do I mean by our natural state? That's our state without any intervention from God. It's our state without the gospel. And we need to think about how bad that is really. And that's our second point. Look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Paul asks, are Jews or Gentiles any better off? And his answer is neither. Both are under the power of sin. Now, these categories of Jew and Gentile might seem a bit abstract to us, but whoever we are, whether we tend towards hedonism or moralism, whether we are religious or not, we are described in these verses. Paul says that we are under the power of sin, all of us, and we are out without excuse, and so we would face wrath. Now, hang on. How can God speak so harshly about humanity? None of us are that bad, are we? In the beginning, God looked out at all he had made. He looked at humanity, and he said it was very good. But now he's bringing a case against mankind. He's quoting from the Old Testament law, from the scriptures. Why? Because the law reveals God's character to us. And my life, your life, the life of everyone who's ever lived, will be held up to that standard. We are eternal creatures, and one day we will stand before the Lord. And on that last day, we will give an answer for our lives. Just what will the verdict be for me and for you? Now, at this stage, it would be easy to switch off. 
This sounds a bit negative. It sounds like bad news. But once Paul establishes our being under the power of sin, he goes on to deliver surely the most stunning exposition of the gospel anywhere in scriptures. But if you miss the helplessness of your state before God, your view of the gospel actually starts to shrink. So what's the verdict then? What can we conclude about mankind? We'll look down at verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. To be in God's presence at all, we need to be righteous. He's perfect and no imperfect thing can come near him. Quite simply, we are not like him. No one is righteous. No one will be able to justify their lives before the Lord. Our actions, our thoughts, our words, they all fall short of righteousness. And it gets worse in verse 11. There is no one who understands. We don't naturally understand our position before God. We don't even understand what true and pure righteousness is. None of us understand just how far we are from God. And none of us understand the peril that that puts us in. In our natural state, without the gospel, we are unrighteous and we don't understand. And continuing in verse 11, there is no one who seeks God. We don't seek after God's righteousness. Instead, uh, we deliberately turn away from that. The problem of our unrighteousness is so bad that we are corrupted even from seeking God. And we don't seek after his ways, after his forgiveness or his grace. But you say, hang on, Tom. That's exactly what happened in my life. I sought Jesus. I was saved. Well, true. And in the gospel, we are called to seek after God. We are called to put our faith in his grace to save us. But on a fundamental level, we can't do this on our own because we're so corrupted by sin. God has to act first. And ultimately, our faith is a gift from God as he makes us alive. Before I ever sought Jesus, he worked in my heart to regenerate me from the inside so that I would have that desire to seek him. But Paul carries on. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God because all without exceptions have turned to other ways and it has catastrophic results. Altogether, we have become worthless. Now, we live in an age that tells us we are all intrinsically commendable. We have the whole world in our hands, but this verse is shocking. Paul says there is nothing in us that has ultimate worth. There is nothing by our nature that brings spiritual life. We have no righteousness. We don't do good, and in this situation, we don't seek after God. And without spiritual life, without that relationship with God, without righteousness, what eternal worth do we have? By nature, none. In the second part of verse 12, there is no one who does good, not even one. Hang on, Paul, surely you're going too far now. People do do good things. Even non-Christians do good things. No, he's right. We do not truly do good. By nature, even our good works are somewhat corrupted by self-interest. Sin has polluted every aspect of our lives, and even doing the things we might see as good 
and commendable become unrighteousness. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He brings evidence. How do we know that no one is righteous? Well, we look at what comes out of us. Listen to these words of Jesus from Mark 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and the rest. It is what comes out of the heart of man that reveals the inside. In verse 13, Paul speaks of what comes out. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The mouth is like an open grave. It shows the death within. The things that come out of our mouths reveal our heart, and the fruit of our mouths is ruinous. Our words are marked out by deception, hatred, and self-interest. And their feet are swift to shed blood, and ruin and misery mark their ways. And mankind has brought ruin and misery on this earth. Generation by generation, we bring ruin on the earth, on each other, and on ourselves. The way of peace they do not know. It's true, we don't know peace with God. By nature, we don't have peace with each other, or even peace on the inside. Why? Why all this? Well, look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, the, the way we treated the God of the universe was wrong. And by nature, outside of God's grace, we refuse to change. We refuse to respond. We refuse to repent. Now, Paul's coming to the conclusion of the first major part of his, uh, his great book here in Romans. And we asked, how bad is it really? And did you notice the all-encompassing scope of these verses? No one, no one, not even one, all, all, all together. The verdict when our lives are held up to the righteous God is terrible. And ultimately, no one is outside the scope of these verses. Only one person lived outside the compass of these statements, and he is our only hope. We asked, how bad is this really? And all people, Jews and Gentiles, you and I, young and old, people with a church upbringing, people who've never been to church, all without exception are under the power of sin. It is a hard message. And yes, we can ignore what Paul is saying here. But the fading years we have on this earth will soon be gone. And each of us will stand before the God of overwhelming righteousness. And what will we say? What defense will we bring? The answer is that I can bring no defense. I have not only neglected God's righteousness, I have perverted it. I have approved of things that are evil. It's like slavery. We are slaves to sin by nature. Why? Because sin corrupts our ability even to respond to God. In fact, if we tried to repair that situation, those very efforts would become stained by sin and we're back into unrighteousness again. By nature, we are helpless. We are radically sinful and simply don't even know how serious that is. In our own strength, there's nothing we can do about it. This is the hard truth. We're lost. 
We can't save ourselves. We can't contribute to our salvation because we've got nothing but sin to bring. Our only response is to say, simply to the cross, I cling. And that brings us to our third question. How can we answer in verses 19 and 20? In verse 19, Paul asks, what's the point of the law? Now we know that what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In chapters 1 and 2, he's already established that the whole world is condemned by the law. The scriptures show beyond all doubt that everyone is unrighteous. And how can we answer? Paul says in our natural state, we can't. That every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We stand and start bringing up our good deeds. I've done well here, I've done well there. We can say it's not fair, but manifestly the law will reveal us to be guilty, to be unrighteous. Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we became conscious of our sin. We can try as hard as we might to follow God's law, to live a good life, But because of our natural state of being under sin, being slaves to sin, we can't do it. We can't become righteous by doing the law. The law is good and perfect, and it, it reveals to us what true righteousness is, the awesome holiness, the magnificent character of God. And if we take it seriously, we're shown to be sinners. And by rights, we could only be silent before him because we've all chosen to rule our own lives. We live life on our terms without consideration for God. And so we are separated from the righteous God, for he is perfect. And I would face condemnation, and it would be totally fair and totally just. But God. And those are amazing words. This chapter has shown that there's nothing we could ever do about our sin and our unrighteousness. But God, he sent another man in his image, just like us, made to have perfect relationship with him. And this man, his son Jesus, he didn't cast off that relationship. He didn't turn away. Instead, he lived in perfect righteousness. And he went to the cross in order to change everything for people like you and I. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, God made him. That's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God transfers all the unrighteousness, all the sin, all the guilt from anyone who simply believes, and he transfers it onto Jesus. And he pours out all of the wrath for that sin there at the cross. Just pause and picture that. All your sin from this week, plastered on Jesus. And God enters into judgment for that sin. And he punishes Jesus exactly as we should have had to be punished. But it's not just this week's sin. It's all your sin. All the things you ever did. All the things you ever will do. The things that you know you did. The things you can't even remember. 
And in the place of all that unrighteousness, he gifts us the righteousness of Jesus. In his eyes, once that great exchange has taken place, we are transformed. We are gifted Jesus' perfect, blameless life before God. Can you imagine what that is? That when God sees you, he sees only, only the perfect righteousness and beauty of Christ. Without Christ, we would rightfully be silent, speechless before him. Our state leaves us hopeless, but he offers to each of us his perfect record of righteousness instead so that we would never have to face condemnation. I want to lift our eyes for a moment to the end of the age when Jesus comes again. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 20, 11 and 12, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. On that last day, the earth will flee away, The heavens will flee away. Earth and heaven will be gone. All the material things of our lives will be gone. But you will be there. And I will be there. Every human being who has ever lived will be there. And on that last day, we will meet Jesus face to face. And we will look on the Lord in all his piercing righteousness. And I ask us, how can we answer? By nature, we are unrighteous. As we look on his glory, we would not have any words to say. None of us could make any defense because sin and unrighteousness, it is literally eternal death to us. But in the gospel, Jesus offers us his pure, brilliant righteousness. In exchange, he takes our sin and our guilt and our shame and he bears it to the cross. And by his righteousness alone, at the last, when we stand before the Lord, he will welcome us home. He will welcome us home as pure, blameless sons of daughters, and he will invite us to sit down at his table. Do you grasp just what he has done for you? One day the Lord of the universe will look on you and smile. And along with countless others, you will sit down at the table of your king. As we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, we are declaring that we have nothing in us that could ever save us. We know that if it were by our righteousness, we would never approach. But by simply confessing our sin and asking for mercy, we are covered by Jesus' brilliant righteousness. And we are called to sit down and celebrate at his table. If today you have realized your helplessness, you've realized your sinfulness, that there's nothing in your strength you can do to change, Nothing you can do to become right with God. Friends, come to the gospel today. Come and plead for forgiveness from the Lord of all mercies. We could never justify ourselves. We could never have righteousness. But that is exactly what he offers you. If this is you, please don't leave this place today until you've responded to that 
until you've asked him for forgiveness, asked him to clothe you with his righteousness. And please come and talk to me afterwards. I would love to pray with you. But if you're trusting Christ today, you know what it was to be under the power of sin. But now you've been gifted righteousness. You're covered by his grace. How will you answer? Does the realization of just how helpless, how lost you were without Jesus and just what he's done for you, does that change everything? How important is the gospel to you? How seriously do you take your sin? How big is your Jesus? I can say with certainty that no one in this room has a big enough Jesus. When we realize what our state was before him, the extraordinary grace that he has shown us, surely we cannot remain passive or or unmoved. Surely we cannot remain casual or mellow or soft about our sin. And when we realize the universal nature of human helplessness before God, what will we do to speak about that to the humanity that lives all around us, to the people we know? Will we tell them of the glorious gospel that changes everything? Earlier this year, uh, Michael Green went to glory. He was an Anglican theologian and evangelist. Back in 2015, he came to speak at my university. I can't remember much about that week itself, but I can remember the Thursday night before the week. Michael came to speak with us, the believers on campus, to prepare us for the week of mission and evangelism that was ahead. At that stage, he was in his late 80s, an old man. And as he spoke to us, he was heartbroken, but confident. He was heartbroken because on the campus, so many people knew nothing of the Lord Jesus. And he was confident because he believed God could and would change people's lives forever. This man in his 80s had such a passion for people's souls, and I will never remember the tears that flowed from his eyes that day as he pleaded with us that we go and tell of the gospel. With that hard fact of human helplessness laid bare in this chapter of Romans, what can we do? What will we do to reach this world with the good news of Jesus? Jesus who came to save helplessly lost sinners like you and I and to restore us to wonderful relationship with Jesus. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If I invite the band back up, in a moment we're going to